Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. For this episode, I'm really happy to have one of my favorite singers, Ian Bostridge from London. Ian, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm fine, all things considered. I mean, that's <laughs> fine, but yeah. Would, would it be cheeky for me to say that you are my second favorite leader singer and my favorite living leader singer? Uh, no, because I can imagine who you're, <laughs> I'd be very honored. I can imagine who your favorite yes. deceased one is. Um, yes, Dietrich Fischer Dieskau, who, who is, I, I mean, how can you say anything other than like the Pope of leader or, yeah. you know, the, the God of leader in the 20th century? Yeah. And I mean, sometimes you feel, you listen to him do something and you think, well, why do I even bother? <laughs> <laughs> then you find there are different i mean the his aesthetic was i don't know I, I i love what he does i love it yeah but his aesthetic is germanic it's germanic but it's also very classical and balanced i'd say it's not yeah it's not but on the other hand when he can he can i remember seeing him do uh, i mean i saw him in concert towards the end of his um career in london maybe five or six times and he could do very extreme things in concert that he probably would never have done in the studio making a recording. I mean, um, or when he thought he was being recorded. But I mean, I remember terrifying, terrifying Earl Koenig in the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London, where, you know, it was really scary and ex expressionistic. Yeah. I only saw him sing Leader once, and this was in Paris in, I think, 86. Right. And the stage presence that he had was just extraordinary yeah very upright very could be very still but also could move around and could also lean i remember him being almost horizontal leaning on the piano and yeah but this real i remember particularly an encore he did in london it must have been around the same year you heard him in paris he did the um the van der nachtlied of of schubert the one that goes über allen gipfeln and uh, oh no, no, it was Meerestiller. Sorry, it was Meerestiller um, by Schubert, and he sang so quietly that everybody in the hall just leant forward and was so quiet. It was the, one, one of those magical, magical moments in concert. Where yeah, I, people just hold their breath trying to listen to yeah, it. Yeah, sort of thing. You know, we're all talking about doing videos and trying to reach out at this time, but you know, we have to have in the end live performances, live performance, and uh, we can only hope that comes back. Um, sooner rather than later. But. Well, so that's the, the, the initial question we've been asking of all the musicians we've been talking to. Presumably, you had a schedule booked for the next couple of years. Yeah. It's like the bottom just drops out of your world, isn't it? Yeah, in all sorts of ways. Uh, I mean, in terms of, how am I going to live? <laughs> but also, how am I going to communicate and do what I do normally? I mean, I'm lucky I've got, at the moment, a lot of writing to do so I can get on with that in terms of being occupied and I've got my family around me so and, and so in lots of ways it's a lovely time it's sunny uh but the worry is there for other people the worry for the economy the worry for the business the worry for oneself and one's friends in terms of this very very strange illness that nobody has quite worked out yet you know. Yeah, and, and, and I hate to make a parallel to Schubert I guess you can make a parallel to Schubert about most things but it's kind of like, so Schubert essentially died of, would you say died of syphilis or died of the symptoms of syphilis or whatever? I think rather um, as we say, you know, people at the moment, one of the big questions is, are people dying of COVID-19 or of 
dying with COVID-19. I think it's probably, he probably died with syphilis, but, it, but the syphilis may have had, or in fact, the treatment for syphilis may have had some impact on his um, immune system. I don't know. And, and while it was a different sort of contact that got the syphilis for him, it's a kind of a similar thing where they knew this disease was there and they didn't know how to stop it. Yeah. And, and where I, I live, I'm in a rural area, I'm next to a tiny village, got fields around me, so we're not too worried about the distance. But you know, I grew up in New York City. I can't imagine being in a city like this um, with, with this sort of stress of every time someone walks by, you know, you're just afraid of especially, what can happen. Especially in New York where everything is so, you know, New York is so claustrophobic. I mean, it's wonderful, but everything is packed close together. You're all on this little island and you have to go in the elevator and in the corridor every day if you go out. Uh, I, I mean, I've got friends in New York and it's been terrifying, I think. Yeah. Terrifying. So, I, I read an interview with you last week, and you someone had asked, why don't you do more writing? He says, when, and you said, I need to have focus to be able to write. So, you've got the focus. What are you writing about? Um, I'm writing some lectures for a, a series at the um, University of Chicago um, called the Berlin Family Lectures, which started about five years ago, and they, they started with a bang with... Um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and since then they've had environmentalists, novelists, architects, and they decided, the University of Chicago, that they wanted to have somebody connected with music, so they asked me to do it, and I, to begin with, I was thinking, goodness, because uh, the, the, the rubric of the of the lectures is that they, they somehow have to, have to connect with the world outside, and I, I thought, am I going to write something really narrow about some musical piece? And, and then I started to think about the issue of... Um, singing and identity and how we present ourselves through the music that we sing and some particular pieces and so at the moment i'm i'm writing the first lecture which is going to be very broadly about issues of racial identity and racial politics uh focusing particularly on ravel's chanson madicas uh which i'm so fascinating and i mean i'm learning all about the history of the history of madagascar french colonial policy in the 18th century and in the 1920s, uh, this p poet Evariste Parny, who wrote the Chanson Madicas in the 1780s, Ravel's politics after the First World War, negrophilia and negra, negra, uh, negritude, negritude yeah. all these all these things that were going on in Paris after the First World War. I, it's, 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 I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to pull it all together, but at the moment I'm in the process of following my nose through the material. It's fascinating, and we'll talk about your book about Winterreise later, but your ability to pull all these threads together in talking about this musical work, I, is it unique in people writing about music? I haven't read too many books that look at music from that point of view, but we'll get to that later. Because I mean, well, I, I, mean I feel people, it, it annoys some people. I remember there was a review by a musicologist of the Winterreise book, and he thought it was so sort of wayward and irresponsible because it went off at tangents all the time and that's why i'm you know as a i'm a performer i, I was you know i was in academia i was in universities and i i would never have written a book like the Vinterizer book if i stayed as an academic right it's not a book for musicologists no, but it's it gave me a certain a certain freedom i suppose to to look at uh, but but on the other hand it also comes from i think from a particular tradition in in the history of science and in um and also probably in the, with people like Stephen Green, Greenblatt and the New Historicism, which is to, to put two things, two unexpected things in juxtaposition. So to look at, you know, the history of 
of of of of, of crystals and life forms in the 18th century and, and put bang that up against Winterizer. That's a very sort of history of science ish Stephen Greenblatt's sort of thing to do. I love histories where you take a central theme and you use it to go over here and then go over here and then go over and show the show the inadvertent connections that maybe weren't obvious but that are you know are 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 waving out from that central from that central point that's the kind of stuff i really like a lot and it's what the french call jouissance it's not necessarily a responsible sort of you know straight down the line argument but it gives you it, you can learn such a lot, I think. But the French have a tradition of that in history. I lived in France for about 30 years. So there is a history of French, the uh, Michel Pastoreau, who's written these books about the histories of different colors. Um, right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've nearly, I buy too many books, I yes. did, but I saw them in the book and I nearly bought <laughs> Nearly well, it's interesting because if you think about the cultural context of a color, I mean, what was it, scarlet that only the royalty could wear and and, mm -hmm. and the way different colors are, are perceived. Anyway. Can I just say regarding colors, you just reminded me of the Brian Eno and, uh, and Roger Eno album, which is all songs about colors. Right. It's since we're throwing the sides in. <laughs> You, you just said something earlier, and, and that made me think that you were talking about, you know, performance. Other than a soloist playing, I don't know, solo violin, I can't think of any classical performer who is more exposed to the audience than a leader singer. Hmm. If you're playing a piano, you're behind the piano, you're protected by the piano. But when you're up there singing leader, you're facing the audience. Yeah. It's very rare that soloists play classical music. Isn't, isn't it almost seems like when I see the videos of you performing, it almost seems like you're acting on stage yeah. in many ways. And, and do you look at your performances as a combination of acting, I'd say in quotes, and music? Yes. I mean, especially because I'm not a trained musician. I didn't, I didn't study. I never learned an instrument. I never did. In, in the UK, we have this thing called grade five theory. I never learned theory. I mean, I can probably hear in the background the piano going. That's my son playing the piano, and he's so much more educated musically than me and slightly can't quite understand how I can get away with it. But <laughs> I, I picked up things on the on the way, but my knowledge is quite... Um, it's sort of patchy. It's deep in some areas, not in others. But I, I think I've, I've, I'm, I feel it's like... Um, yeah, it's like... Um, it, it's it's theatre. It's, it's, it's music theatre, but it's a very particular sort of music theatre. And I, I've done some leader leader works in 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 a more staged way like uh you know i, I did the hans sender version of interizing a full staging with video and and set and everything and that's one way of doing it but there's also you know it's 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 like a sort of very austere japanese art form it's you and the pianist and the piano and but it's very in, it's very intense i think and again i go back to this thing about live performance you can't possibly understand what a leader recital is from from watching it on i mean it's it's great to watch them on video but it's it's not the real deal yeah as someone who lives three miles from stratford upon avon goes to the theater often um yeah. the difference between being you know in the front row and seeing yeah. these people within touching distance and yeah. and feeling the feeling that you get from the performer on stage and the difference of watching on video leader is a is originally a, a, a very intimate performance thing anyway it's very chamberish isn't it we, kirk and i were talking about this earlier because i'm relatively new to this this subgenre and um while i'm enjoying it very much it's it's fascinating that it it is a a a, a close and intimate performance that you have to do it is but what's interesting i think is the way that this material can be taken up and used in, in different ways so originally you know vinterizer was written 
wasn't really even written to be particularly performed in any i mean not certainly not in concert it wasn't performed in total in concert until 30 or 40 years after the composer's death it, it was something that people might sort of have on their piano and and sing along to or schubert sang it in his living room but it but but you can also successfully by doing it in a different way sing it in carnegie hall or la scala milan just you and the piano and it's just it's a different thing but it's 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 you can you you have to maintain a, a sort of truth to the material but it's and it has some sort of intimacy but it's a di it's a different thing and it, it's what happens with these these great pieces of classical music is they they get conceived in one circumstance and then projected into another i mean i always think of um britain's opera wonderful opera the M M midsummer night's dream which was written for um the albra festival when the albra festival was really quite a small thing and it was it was performed in what's called the jubilee hall in in Aubrey, which is it's like a sort of church hall with about seats about 300 people and it would have had bunting outside and it would have had an incredibly sort of like villagey feel about it mm. as if you were putting on the school play but then you can go and um you know you can go and watch it at the met that you know i can't think of any larger opera house i've in terms in terms of breadth and, and you know over so it's it's extraordinary i think yeah i want to go back to your career you said you're not trained in music and i find that fascinating of all the musicians we've talked to some of them you know they started when they were four years old and they were already proficient by the age of 10 and if i understand correctly you sort of learned music when you were a teenager you were a singer and then you went to university and you wrote a book well you wrote a thesis it became a book witchcraft and its transformations yeah how did you go from witchcraft to professional singing what what are the steps in between there well it was i'd always i'd always sung so if you, if i went in retrospect i'd look at and, all and that's part of the british tradition of church choirs and all that right yeah, yeah but i didn't i didn't go the, in the i didn't pursue the sort of grand tradition i mean i at various times you know i i could have gone and been a choir i could have tried to get in and be a choir boy at westminster abbey or i could have taken a tried to take get a choral scholarship at oxford but i i didn't do that so it was very much was the local church choir in South London. Um, but I did, I was in an opera um, because my school, my, my prep school, which was a, you know, an ordinary academic prep school that had very, very good music and a very, very good music teacher. We, we auditioned to be in an opera at, at the English National Opera, Verter, and so I was in that when I was 12. Um, with Janet Baker, which was really extraordinary. With Charles no pressure McCarris. there. <laughs> Charles, Charles McCarris conducting, who I later later on worked with a lot. Uh, and John Tomlinson in a tiny, tiny role. So whenever I see him, I remind him that he was, I can't remember if it's Johan or Schmidt, but anyway. And he used to give, give us toffee, and I was 12. Um, so I, 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 it was just, a, what happened then was the musical interest carried on because uh, I had a great German teacher at my next school, and he got us into into leader as a way of learning and become being close to the German language. And he's still doing that. He's now professor of leader at the Royal Academy of Music. Um, and uh, it was just my hobby really. And then it, um, it was just such a fun, it was such a funny time. It was, you know, I, if I was 20 years older, I would never, I don't imagine I'd have become a singer. I would have become an academic, but because I entered the academic marketplace in the wake of Thatcherism, uh, universities were, short of money it just wasn't the same you know if i'd gone in in the 1950s i just would have probably stayed in oxford for the rest of my life and sung on sung for a hobby but uh it didn't work out like that so but how did you be you don't just 
knock on someone's door and say, hey, I want to sing Schubert Lieder. How did you get to that stage? Um, I, I, I sang Lieder recitals when I was an undergraduate to tiny audiences and learned some of the repertoire. Then I went to Cambridge for a year and I had a teacher who somehow made me feel a bit more ambitious about it. And I started entering, well, particularly I, I applied to go to the, the Britain Peers School in Aldborough. And I did that two years running, and that I I was the only person doing it who hadn't who wasn't at music college or anything like that, and it was slightly scary, but it gave me a sense of what it was like. Then, after I finished my um, after I finished my doctoral thesis, I didn't get the research fellowship straight away. Uh, I got a job in television in London as a researcher, um, and I the job was not. It wasn't enough for me or there wasn't enough going on or and so I, I carried on singing and I started entering competitions and I started doing quite started doing quite well uh, I had another teacher in London and then by the time I did get the research fellowship in 92 um, I my singing career was already sort of semi underway so I, I was then trying to run two jobs at, yeah. in parallel yeah for three for three years and then in 95 I became a singer full-time and in the beginning, did people sort of look down on you because you don't read music? You can't sight read? Not particularly. I mean, there's a noble, there's a long and noble tradition of of, of, of singers who are completely, completely musically illiterate, much worse than me. <laughs> I mean, really great singers like Pavarotti, who could, you know, he probably yeah. only knew about 60 arias and uh, could read music, <laughs> but he was one of the greatest singers of all time. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there are different... I, I mean, I'm amazed. You know, my colleagues, some of my colleagues are so extraordinary because they're people who were uh, who were music scholars. At, um, you know, um, they were in the great choirs. You know, like in Kings, like uh, Jerry Finley, Mark Padmore, Simon Keenley's side. Uh, he was at Johns, I think, and uh, Yestin Davis. All these people had that incredible training, which I think is a is a great thing. And I I miss not having it, but um, you know, that's the way it is. And it's probably made me a different sort of singer, but. Yeah, it's true. Okay, so Winter Isa is, uh, I was trying to think this morning, it's like the Hamlet of leader in some ways. It just transcends everything so much. I, I first heard this, this is about 40 years ago. I was 20 years old. I had a friend. As you can see, I've got a Grateful Dead t-shirt on. I don't know if you recognize the logo. I've been a deadhead since I was 16, and I listened to rock, and I was listening to New Order and The Clash and Joy Division. Yeah. But I had a friend who was into classical music, and he turned me on to a number of things, including like box cantatas. And he yeah. said, oh, you got to check out Vintice. It's so cool. Yeah. And I heard it, and I went and I bought... One of those old clamshell double LPs, it was Fisher D. Scow, probably on Deutsche Grammophon, yeah. and it just grabbed me immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I only read the lyrics once back then, and I just listened to the music over and over, and then I probably have 30 different recordings of it now. Yeah. Um, but it just it's just so powerful that there's not much in classical music Let's put opera on to, to the side, but in general classical music, I can't think of anything other than, say, the Goldberg Variations that is that much of a of a monument in music. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge thing. I, mean, I remember when I was there, I, there was a period where I was performing it a lot with uh, Leif of Antsnes, the pianist, and uh, he said, you know, there wasn't anything in his repertoire where he stayed on stage for that long, you know, to, 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 yeah. to be on stage without without any interruption for 70, 75 minutes. Um, no, it's a, it's a huge thing. And, it, and it's also very, it's not like anything else because it's not, it's so much not about the singing. Uh, 
which is yeah. dangerous because I've been I've probably been singing it, and since I wrote the book, I've probably been singing it more than ever. And uh, you always have to remember after you've been singing Venturizer to go back to the whole you know singing you know singing business and bel canto just <laughs> keep your voice healthy. But with Venturizer, you you can really you can do it any any way that works, and it also breaks down this this barrier that there is between uh, popular music and, and classical music. I think because I'm not saying that you can that you can get away with singing Vinterizer in a Bob Dylan voice exactly, and with the Bob Dylan, I won't call them mannerisms because they're not mannerisms; they're just style. No, they're, they're him, yeah, yeah. But they are a style, um, and you ca you can't just graft that onto Vinterizer. But on the other hand, I don't think we need to feel it should. I don't like it when it sounds like opera singing. <laughs> yeah, um, well, it's too big. It's too big, and it's too full of the gestures of you know, singerly gestures to do with bel canto and to do it. It needs to be much, you need to not notice that the singer's singing, I think. One of the things that Kirk had pointed out to me is that it was popularly done by a baritone, but uh, it was written for tenor or I, 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 we, neither of us was really sure how that works when you transpose between voices. The thing is the original, if you do the original keys, um, you can do, you do 90% of them and tenor keys, I would say. But some of it's a bit low for a tenor. But uh, you can, a tenor can do them in the original keys. A bar any baritone has to transpose them, I think you'd say. Uh -huh. uh, but there are moments, you know, where it would be a real advantage to be a baritone because it's quite low. There are some, there are some very, you know, some low notes I'd like to have a bit more punch in. And I, but I, those songs I wouldn't transpose. So. Um, and and yet there's the primacy of the baritone because of Fischer Dieskau, yeah. and it's almost rare that there are tenors who do it a lot. And Peter Schreier did it a little bit, but his career wasn't just around leader. I mean, you don't just sing leader; you also do opera, but you do more leader than opera. Uh, well, who are the other? Is Mark Padmore's a tenor, isn't he? He's a tenor. He does it a lot. Um, yeah, Christoph Bragadian, I love, um, but he's he's quite a. It's funny he sings he sings in quite low keys, but he's definitely a, he has a very tenorial sound. Uh, yeah, his famous probably is 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 Peter Pears, which I don't really like, but I I'd listen to it because the piano playing is so incredible. Because Ben, yeah, I'm glad uh, you said that because I've never appreciated his voice. I, do, I mean, it's amazing it, in some things. I, it I doesn't can, have the finesse that I think you need for yeah, that. Yeah, I love him singing Britain, and I love him yeah. singing the Evangelist in the in the Matthew Passion, but I don't really like the leader so much. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I'd only read the lyrics once early on. Has anyone ever thought, or or is this done to do leader recitals with surtitles over the stage? I've done that. Yeah, I have done that, and it's um it can work. I mean, you know, the problem is the the ideal is of course not to have anything in the way at all because in saying that it's a form of theatre, as we were talking about earlier, you don't really want anything coming in between you and the and the audience. But of course, if the audience is non-German speaking, you have to. So I think- Because you miss a lot by not having the lyrics. I, I, I was kind of hoping my streaming, I was streaming uh, your 2000 recording of it on, on Apple Music today. And I, of course, instinctively went right to the lyrics tab to see, and some of them have lyrics, but not all of them. And it's, it's, it would be nice to be able to identify with it. Although, as Kirk was, was saying, you viscerally, you know the music hits you viscerally. So there's a lot of talk about you know the words are the most important. It's it's a it's a it's a big sort of trope in talking about singing, but um and the word of course the words are important. But 
the sound is imp the sound of the words is important too and I, I you can get a lot out of it without understanding the words at all actually i mean i i i gave a performance at the samuel beckett festival in anderskin about i want to say five years but it probably means it was 10 years ago um <laughs> you mentioned it in your book so it's several years ago um and you know the the audience didn't by some oversight didn't have the words but it was an incredibly i felt an incredible connection with them and again also i probably mentioned this in the book too i remember going to the Marley Theatre of St. Petersburg doing a Chekhov play and yeah. there were super titles and everybody was reading them and it was a slightly, um, I remember David Pountney saying that, that um, super titles are like theatrical condoms and it was slightly, <laughs> it was slightly dis distanced, but then, yeah. then the super titles broke down and everybody started ah. concentrating on the acting and it didn't matter that we couldn't understand all the words because we were yeah. watching something very, very real because the Marley Theatre are amazing. I'm very distracted by subtitles when they do it for operas and things like that. I mean, I think it's, you know, you reasonably familiar with the story of the opera, but I mean, you can still appreciate the music on a, on a you know, on a just, I'm just hearing it level. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe, you know, sometimes you should do it with and sometimes without, you can, you know, but that's, you know, it depends how much of an aficionado you are. If you're a real aficionado, I suppose you go away and prepare for each, um, lead a recital by looking at the text and making sure you know them. But I mean, that's a, that's a council of perfection when everyone's so busy. I mean, that's what we did when I was at school. We'd, you know, we'd have a whole German lesson preparing to go to, or a few German lessons preparing to go to the recital, but yeah. um, not everyone can do that. And I said, and you, <laughs> you always get a few people in the audience who have actually a score or something and they're turning the pages while it's going on. And that's really annoying. It can be a bit distracting. <laughs> yeah. I always remember it, doing a, doing a new piece by, um, Hans Werner Henser um, at the Wigmore Hall, and, and he was there, but also the wonderful, lovely, lovely Oliver Nusson, who sadly died a couple of years ago. Um, he was there, and he was looking at something all the way through, and I was terrified that he, he had the score, because he had such an ear, he would be able to tell all the mistakes I made, because it was really quite a different piece of you know contemporary music. And it was t I was completely fantasizing it. He didn't have the score at all. He just had something else that he was occasionally... <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it can be distracting. You mentioned Samuel Beckett, and Beckett famously loved Winterheiser. I find the parallel between Beckett's work and Winterheiser to be quite stunning. It is stunning, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, you could almost believe that Winterheiser was part, part of the inspiration for, for, for Waiting for Godot and the way it's set up. I mean, the tree, all that stuff. Yeah. Right? We're talking to someone next week about historically informed performance, and I was wondering, what can you do with Schubert Lieder other than using a piano from the time is there, do we know how people sang, vibrato or not vibrato, phrasing, voicing, etc.? I don't think we really know. I mean, I think people have always had different sorts of voices. People have had big voices, small voices, wobbly voices, not so wobbly voices. Uh, and, you know, you can go and look at treatises on singing, but they're always very biased in a particular direction. And I just think the great thing about the period performance movement has been, I think, first and foremost using different instruments so finding new colors that are exciting and also thinking about phrasing in a different way yeah. um so thinking about phrase and that's where words do come in so thinking about music more rhetorically rather than in terms of great big waves of sound so i i think i don't have a doctrinaire approach to it and thinking i've got to think about how they sang it then particularly but i do if i get sort of criticized for doing it in a way that people don't like that they don't think is 
right, then I quite often look back to how it was performed then as a justification. I mean, if you, if you, you know, some people think Schubert should be performed sort of in inverted commas without interpretation, that it, that it should be, you know, it, there's this fantasy of just, you can sing it plain. And if you go back to how it, Johann Michael Forgo sang it and how he was criticised, he was, you know, Schubert's great singer in the, in the, in the 1820s who, who a lot of this stuff was written for and Schubert worked with him a lot. He was incredibly extreme and actually probably melodramatic and ex, uh, expressionistic beyond even how we are now. And if you look at accounts also of leader singing later in the 19th century, a lot of it was very expressionistic and declamatory and not, not about the way, not about sung line and spinning, but about um, sort of punchiness and uh, underlining. And so there, there are so many different traditions. And I think the great thing is that we can all, we can inherit them all and keep them all going. Even as an individual singer, you can sing different songs in different ways. Can you sing Schubert leader softly? Like, Instead of someone filling a huge hall, Carnegie Hall, with the loud voice, can you do it with a clavichord accompanying you? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, if I sing at home, I sing more quietly, I suppose. Yeah, because you have to think of your neighbours. Yes. <laughs> and we do, we do, you know, we have had, we do, used to do quite a lot of, you know, running things in at home. And it's a different experience, definitely. But I think, you know, classical singers are always a bit too loud. <laughs> Yeah, well, because they have to fill halls, yeah, and we get used and to, we get used to that being the technique. So, yeah, um, I don't think I don't think we we sing like. I mean, it's been interesting recently. I've been doing a lot of. Um, I've been working with the jazz pianist Brad Maildow. Uh He wrote a song cycle for us to do, but also uh, as part of the program, or to, at the as, as encores, we've been doing jazz standards, and finding a way of doing those has been interesting. And I I think. I'm, I'm sort of getting there with his help, but it's, but it's, you know, it's without amplification. So it's a different, um, it's a different thing. I think you have to try and work out a way of using your natural amplification, but still sounding like you're doing something jazzy. I was going to mention Brad Meldow. He is my favorite jazz musician. I haven't heard what you've done with him. I know you just did a short tour. Yeah. Is this going to come out on record soon? Uh, yeah, we're going to rip. Well, when we can get together, we will. Um, yeah. I mean, we were supposed to be doing it again in, in Milan in September, and that's been uh, cancelled, stroke postponed. But I think next year we will we will record it. It's an amazing cycle, full of all sorts of different styles of mina, you know, sort of echt classical style, and uh, but also there's there's a wonderful setting of E. Cummings, which is like sort of um, what does he say? It's a uh, it's um, it's super tramp with Wurlitzer, He says. <laughs> He, he's an extraordinary musician in in the the wide variety of things he does. The way you know everything from standards to Radiohead covers to the thing he did the the Bach related stuff he did recently. It it's really there are few musicians that touch so many things as, as he does. Yeah, and it's it's been a real I've sort of I've, it's been one of the great things in my life to be able to do that. And, feel and so, did you approach him? Did he approach you? We met at this hotel. Uh, called Schloss Elmau, which is in near Garmisch-Partenkirchen. And they run a sort of cultural program. It's a very, very nice hotel, but they have, they have authors coming and a lot of musicians coming. And in fact, in the 1950s, Britain and Piers went there. Um, okay. When it was a lot more austere as a hotel, I think. But, um, yeah. And so I happened to be there doing Winterizer with a young Chinese pianist, Wen Wen Du. And Brad happened to be there doing, I think he was there with his trio, but also was doing uh, one of his solo evenings. 
And I heard that and was completely blown away. And we went out to dinner and we really got on both, you know, individually and our families really got on. And and eventually it blossomed into this amazing piece, which we we premiered at Schloss Almel. Then we did a European tour. And then back in October, it, the, the first I had big surgery last year. And it was the first thing I did after my surgery was to go on tour with Brad, sort of rather, you know, and that was a great, wonderful thing to start with. I, think. I hope the surgery worked out well. This is not the time you want to be going to a hospital for anything. No, I mean, it's great that I had it last year, because if, I'd, if, I'd, if it had been this year, I would still be waiting to have it. And it would, you know, it's been very successful. But um, but also, it's funny, it makes it, it in retrospect, I got so agitated and worried about it. But in retrospect, this seems so much more worrying <laughs> situation we're in now. I know, um, I know. Wikipedia, which famously has all sorts of things, says that uh, on your page, he lists his hobbies as reading, cooking, and looking at pictures. I find that interesting. What, what sort of pictures do you look at? It was just when I when I first became a singer and I thought, what shall I put? I mean, it's probably, I probably wrote that 25 years. I just meant I like, one of the great things about being a singer is that when you go to all these cities and you can go and look at paintings and yeah. sculptures and... and you get you're very privileged because instead of having to go to these exhibitions which do are wonderful because they bring stuff together in a big city from all over but they tend to be overcrowded you can go to the permanent collections and and the museums uh, are empty unlike the special exhibits where you have to yeah, reserve yeah. tickets months in, in advance yeah yeah, yeah. so it's great yeah. Great thing. So yeah. what are you doing now? So you're writing, but can you practice without an accompanist or do you press gang your son to play for you to practice? Um, we're going to do, we do not, I don't press gang him to do that, but, but we are going to, we're probably trying, we're going to try and put together one song that we can put on out on some sort of social media ish thing. Probably, great. probably silent noon by Vaughan Williams. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on my voice. So trying to make it better. So that's, and you know, I wouldn't have that opportunity if this hadn't happened. So that's a good thing. Do you feel that you need to make it, air quotes, better? I mean, your I voice think, is you, right? Yeah, but I think there are things that I've, you know, that I want to extend and expand and feel more secure about. So maybe okay. touch, new, touch new repertoire. So, because uh, I think my voice has got bigger. Because I think when I started as a singer, I was very aware of it being in inverted commas a small voice and there was a, that was commented on a lot and it's still occasionally commented on yeah. but i know it's not true because i sing in very big halls and also yeah. i've sung i've sung very loud pieces um like oedipus rex so i i working on how to accommodate you know your voice changes as you get older and you have sure. to work on how to accommodate the changes I think. yeah okay ian bostridge thank you very much for joining us it's been a pleasure talking with you thank you very much bye-bye Before we get to our next track picks this week, we wanted to tell you about how you can help support the next track. Yes, if you've been a regular listener to the next track, you know that we've had a handful of sponsors over the years, but we don't even go out of our way anymore because it's just too much work to get sponsors for a podcast like this. So we've decided to set up a Patreon page, which is a way that you can contribute to the podcast every month. It'll really help us out because... You know, this is a labor of love for us, and we do take time away from our other projects that could be making us money. And it's more fun to do this show without having to worry about finding sponsors and things like that. It enables us to really go anywhere we want. And we figure that there are people who are listening who want to go to those places with us. And those are the people we're kind of counting on to kick in a couple of bucks and uh, help us keep self-sustaining and ad-free. That's the most important part. We really don't want to have to go to sponsors. It's just, it's just not worth it for us. 
wouldn't be worth it to you and probably wouldn't be worth it to the sponsor. So there'll be a link in the show notes and there will be a link in the introduction to every podcast in the show notes in the future. You can go to our Patreon page and by default, the recommended amount of monthly donation is $5, but you can put anything you want there. You can add as many zeros as you want. (laughs) So we really hope that some of you will contribute to keep this podcast going. It'll pay for our hosting and it'll pay for the occasional virtual beer that we sit down and share over the ether through Skype. Uh, we got to cut back on that. That's just, that's going to ruin my marriage. <laughs> well, it depends on how much money <laughs> they true. give us, because if they give us enough, we can go up to single malls. <laughs> that would be great. All right. That's that business taken care of. Let's get to our next tracks. What have you got this week? It doesn't seem appropriate to pick a next track pick this week. That is something other than a recording of Vinto Isa. And in fact, I'm going to pick two. I'm going to pick two videos that you can find on YouTube. The first one is Ian Bostrich performing in 2016. And what I think is really important is to watch the way he moves on stage as he's singing. He prowls around the piano. He's very emotive. This is a form of acting. This is a form of theater. There's much more than just the music. The second one is Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, who, as I said, was the predominant leader singer of the late 20th century. It's recorded in 1979 with pianist Alfred Brendel, and it's a studio recording. It's not a live performance. But what's interesting is the difference in the way Fischer-Dieskau uses his body compared to Ian Bostrich. He's much, he doesn't move much. He's a lot of expressiveness in his face. But he's, he moves very slowly and carefully, and he doesn't prowl, he doesn't lean over on the piano. Yet, when you hear his voice, the emotion that's coming out is very, very different than what you see in it. So, two YouTube videos to check out, and if you really want to follow this up, I'll put a couple of links in the show notes to videos where Ian Bostrich is, in one of them, giving a lecture about Winterheist, so it's called Why Winterheist, Schubert Song Cycle, Then and Now, and another one where he is discussing with pianist Jeremy Denk about his book about Winterheist that we mentioned in the show. Doug, what have you got? Herbie Hancock turned 80 years old recently. I, quite frankly, I, I, I kind of forgotten about Herbie Hancock. Um, the first album I ever heard by Herbie Hancock was Headhunters, and a couple of tracks on that record got some airplay. Not a lot of airplay because... There are only four songs on the album, and so you'd rarely hear them. But at the time when it came out, it was on college radio a lot. And I'll tell you, I could not get enough of that song, Chameleon. You know, it's that's the one that goes... I just, I just could not get enough of it. And it's 15 minutes long already, but I used to play it over and over again. I just loved it. Headhunters, I was also surprised to learn at the time, and just now, was Herbie Hancock's 12th record. And, you know, here I was thinking, oh, this is a relatively new guy. (laughs) And uh, he'd been around for a while. Um, But Headhunters is just a great classic 70s album. Uh, The syncopation and the the world music and the jazz, and it's just terrific stuff. It was recorded at Wally Hyder Studios, which I did not know. And uh, you may know that he's a a world-famous San Francisco recording guy. Um, Just a great record, uh, obviously iconic, uh, fun to listen to, and... Bow, 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 bow. Just can't get enough. Herbie Hancock, happy birthday. Headhunters is my next track. 
This was episode number 178 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. We recorded our interview with Ian Bostridge on Friday, April 10th, 2020. Your comments on any episode are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElharn, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.